Hello and welcome to the Free Mind Podcast with Seth and Nerva Reddy. This is Stephen Robles and we are starting a brand new series of shows entitled The God and Government Series. Over the next couple of months, we're going to be interviewing a wide variety of people to talk about the relationship between Christianity, politics, God, and government. It's going to be an incredible series. In this first episode, we interviewed Lawrence W. Reed. And on the show, we discuss, was Jesus a socialist? We talk about what socialism actually is, the implications of it, and is it actually a tenable way of governing? It's an awesome interview, and we also have a bonus episode that will be available to our Patreon listeners. And if you haven't signed up, you can go to patreon.com slash freemindfm, and you can listen to our bonus episode there. Before we jump to the interview, we want to remind you one more time of our sponsor, Impact360.org. They have incredible online courses to teach you, your children, students, apologetics, courses on truth, worldview, and defending the resurrection. You can use the promo code FREEMIND to get $25 off one of those online courses. And if you have a senior this year and they might be going off to college in the next year, we encourage you to check out their gap year. It's a nine-month program where your student will go to the Impact 360 Institute and learn a solid foundation of the biblical worldview, apologetics, and how to engage with these ideas when they go on to university after that. You can get the application fee waived if you use the promo code FREEMIND when you apply. And now, here's our interview with Lawrence W. Reed. Welcome to the Free Mind Podcast, and welcome to our first episode of our God and Government series. We're super excited to have our special guest with us today. His name is Lawrence Reed, Lawrence W. Reed, and he is the President Emeritus of the Foundation of Economic Education. Fee, for short. Known as Fee, <laughs> and the author and sometimes and editor of several books, including Excuse Me, Professor, Challenging the Myths of Progressivism, and... Real Heroes, Inspiring True Stories of Courage, Character, and Conviction. Prior to joining Fee in 2008, he served for 20 years as president of the Mackinac Center for Public Policy. He also taught economics full-time for nearly a decade. A frequent guest on radio and television, Reed has written thousands of articles and delivers dozens of speeches each year. And he's also appeared on um, Prager University promoting his um, recent book that we are going to discuss today. We're excited. And it's called, Was Jesus a Socialist? So we're going to dig in deep today. Yeah, looking really forward to that. Um, thanks for coming on here, Dr. Reed. We really appreciate it. Hey, my pleasure, uh, Seth and Irva. It's a real honor to be with you. Thanks for thinking of me. Oh, well, the whole reason we really brought you on here um, is because we wanted you to solve a problem for us today. We're out here in the San Francisco Bay, California area, and our, uh, we can't seem to get our AC fixed. We, we brought somebody out, and they said everything's working fine. And then today they gave us a text saying, asking, I guess, everybody in the area, would we turn down our electri- electronic go. devices and even turn off our air to save electricity for other people. So we wanted you to help us. Uh, get the connection between socialism and our AC not working as we're here dying and sweating during this interview. Yeah, that's what try to stay cool. Well, well once again, <laughs> the problem is probably a publicly owned, which means government-run utility, 
and maybe the best solution for the long run is to sell it, privatize there it. Go. <laughs> there you go, privatize. That's there good. We go. Well, we we if is if you're watching us on YouTube, um, you will see that we will be probably sweating profusely because it literally is 86 degrees in this apartment right now, it's and so it's, bad. Bad. it's it's rough here. So we're we're really roughing it for you guys to get this interview because we believe in it. But you know, as we jump in today, we're going to talk about your book. Um, maybe before we get into the theology elements though uh, it might be helpful for many people who have don't really know what socialism is we kind of hear these terms thrown around mostly the marketing of man free stuff uh, you know paying for college tuition free health care all this kind of stuff wrapped into these bundles and I did notice early on in your book you said that in May 2016 a Gallup poll revealed that 55% of 18 to 29 year olds had a positive image of socialism. That was in 2016. Well, in 2019, you say that a Harris poll showed that half of Americans aged 18 to 39, which puts me in the upper edge of that, said they would quote prefer living in a socialist country, unquote. A 2019 report by the Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation revealed that more than 70% of millennials said they were likely to vote for a socialist. What's going on here, uh, Dr. Reed? Help us understand why are all these you know, folks in our category opting for socialism? Uh, great question. Uh, there's no doubt about it that the overwhelming majority of those who responded favorably to those polls, I'm sure, are of the best of intentions. Uh, the problem typically is that they've been sold uh, uh, socialism on the packaging, not on the mm -hmm. content. And the packaging often looks like this. Oh, socialism will care for people. It will give you things. It will relieve you of responsibilities. It will punish rich people and give the proceeds to you. And, you know, to a lot of people who may be idealistic or may not be uh, well-versed in economics, that sounds like, wow, I think people will be better off after we do that. Um, but then uh, when you look at the content of socialism, what actually happens, not just the rhetoric um, uh, and the promises, but the actual performance of the system over centuries, it hasn't worked even once. It produces a concentration of political power. Lord Acton told us 150 years ago that political power uh, is corrupt. Uh, it corrupts people, and the more of it you have, the more corrupting it is. And um, in terms of economic performance, those things that actually end up feeding and clothing and housing people, it doesn't perform well on that score either because it strips away the incentives of productive people to create, uh, to innovate, to start businesses, uh, and it um, uh, punishes the people who are successful at doing that. So it, it, it's a lot of promises that people have been sold, and it sounds good if that's as deep as you get, but you go a little deeper and you discover uh, the devil's in the details, maybe mm -hmm. in more, more ways than one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, I would imagine that's true, and you know, would you also say part of it, we don't really get a good education in history anymore either, particularly with oh, economics? Yeah, you know, uh, history actually is my first love, even more so than economics. And I constantly lament how little uh, we really are teaching uh, young people these days in history and how perverted it often is to serve political agendas instead of, you know, what actually happened, good or bad. Mm. Um, 
that's it's a shame, but that's uh, the temper of our times, I guess. I, we have to hope and pray that we can change that so that people look at uh, history more objectively and honestly. Um, mm-hmm. It doesn't mean we'll end up all agreeing on what happened, yeah. but at least we should agree on the facts of what happened. We can interpret, sure. interpret them differently, but the facts are the facts. Right. Now that's old school. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. I, well, you're talking Amazing. to an old timer. <laughs> so let's dive into socialism. Would you give us, for those listeners who have never taken a course and are not history lovers, Tell us, what is socialism? Okay, great question, uh, Nerva, because, you know, even socialists don't always agree (laughs) on what it is, and they haven't over the decades. Uh, At one time, uh, most people, even socialists, agreed that socialism meant the government ownership of the means of production. But everywhere that's been tried, most notably the old Soviet Union, it was a complete, unmitigated uh, flop. And so socialists these days typically say, oh, well, no, we really didn't mean that. Uh, So they may mean uh, just government planning of the economy. We'll leave a lot of it in private hands, they say. We won't have government nationalizing everything. But uh, everybody who owns these things uh, will be essentially told uh, what to do. We're going to plan the economy from the top so it will be fair. And, of course, that's a flop everywhere it's tried, too. The very uh, idea that, that you could have a handful of elite with uh, political power pushing other people around and shaping their economy for them is ridiculous. Um, So now, more often than not, uh, people who claim to be socialists say, well, it's really just a welfare state. That's what we mean, Uh, where the government will tax uh, the wealthy heavily and uh, uh, fork over the proceeds to various special interest groups, uh, not just the needy, but special industries that we like or whatever it may be. So it, it depends on you know, who you're talking to, what socialism is. But here's a definition maybe we can agree on because it kind of boils it all down, regardless of what its objectives may be. Socialism is the concentration of power and the use of force, it's not voluntary, uh, to achieve central planning, government ownership of the means of production, or a welfare state, or some combination of the three. That's what it amounts to. And the key word there is force, because uh, the, the number one thing that differentiates it from, uh, say, capitalism is, op- is opposite, is that it isn't voluntary. If you just listen to socialists, they never say, well, here's a list of suggestions for you. No, they have uh, an endless roster of things they want to impose, that they want to forcibly mandate on people. Uh, whether it be through higher taxes or government programs. It's not a a list of suggestions for the comment box. Socialism is force, legal and political, uh, from the top, uh, and uh, that emanates from the concentration of political power into the hands of those who are in charge of government. I like that. I like the way you distilled that down. And, um, you know, you, you mentioned this a little bit ago that Russia kind of being the one of the prime or the, the USSR, I guess, would have been one of the prime examples. You also have the Nazi form of socialism in, in Hitler's Germany. And then you got the modern examples, I guess, of Venezuela and some of the other Latin American countries. Um, and they all seem to be like awful, murderous, totalitarian governments. How did how do how are people? Tr- than trying to put a positive spin if that's the 
like not even just eight out of 10 cases, but you're looking at 10 out of 10, you know, a hundred percent where this model has been tried that it's ended in this, you know, just murderous, awful dystopian type situation. How are people trying to put a positive spin on that these days to sell socialism? More often than not, uh, socialists uh, will change the subject uh, and not try uh, to put a positive spin on some of those things. If you press them, many times they'll say, well, that wasn't really what we intended. That, it just went bad in that case. The wrong people got in charge. We'll get it right the next time. Uh, that, after centuries of that kind of uh, excuse, it's getting a little tiresome, but that's what a lot of them say. Well, we'll just try better next time. In other words, they really don't get to the fundamentals and realize that uh, socialism uh, doesn't uh, just fail in practice. It fails in theory, too, uh, mm. because it, it springs from the notion that man can be perfected uh, by uh, the introduction of political force. We just have to have the right people to tell them what to do, and we can make uh, men as close to perfect as, as is possible, and that somehow uh, people exercising that total power can be uh, magnanimous about it. Uh, they don't understand the history and, uh, and, and uh, elemental principles of human nature. Uh, you know, one of the most eternal lessons to be learned from history and our study of political science and, and of human nature is that uh, human beings are fallen. They are uh, flawed. And so there are thir- certain things you never want to give any of them in, in a total sense, and one of them is power. Uh, and no human being is capable of exercising total power or even close to it without sooner or later being corrupted by it. Um, the lust for power, I think, uh, which is at the core of socialism, certainly in practice, if not in theory, is probably the most corrupting influence or motivation in the history of humankind. It has taken even good people and just ground them up into dust, mm. turned them into evil people, because of what it does to the mind. It just, you know, look at Robespierre in the French Revolution. He, before the revolution, he was uh, deemed a kind of moderate. He was opposed to the death penalty and so forth. And then he gets in charge and it gets intoxicated with power and starts lopping off heads by the hundreds uh, with the guillotine. That is a, a sad lesson that sh- should not have to be relearned all the time, but, but we have to learn it because a lot of people think, oh, well, next time, you know, we'll be better at it. That's interesting. I didn't know that. Uh, I, I knew about Robespierre and the guillotine. I didn't know he was against the death penalty before that. So that's pretty wild. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it, as you're saying that, what? just, just to kind of put it down more to a ground level, why is it that the idea of this centralized planning tends to lead towards bad economies? Because it sounds like, man, we, why not put our best thinkers you know, yeah, all in yeah. a room together and plan this thing out? Doesn't planning help? What, why does it lead to that? Well, the Nobel laureate uh, economist, uh, F.A. Hayek, uh, explained this very well when he said that, uh, the, that knowledge is not concentrated in uh, individual people. It's widely diffused. We all know maybe a lot about our little corner of the universe, but none of us and no collection of us would ever know enough to be able to make the decisions that could govern an economy of hundreds of millions of people. It's a pretense to knowledge, as Hayek would put it, uh, for any group of people to think that they could possibly know that much. Uh, You know, the founder of our foundation uh, for economic education, Leonard Reed, wrote a great essay in 1958. It's been a a classic over the years called I Pencil. 
Have either of you heard of, of iPencil before? I don't think so. Outside maybe the book it, mentioned. Yeah, you mentioned. Oh, okay. I just mentioned it. In, uh, your listeners and you can, can access it at fee.org. But uh, he tells the story of how a pencil comes into being, and he does it as if it's the pencil doing the talking. And the pencil says, well, I may seem pretty simple, but I'm extraordinarily complicated. Uh, for you to know how to make me, you would have to be a logger. You'd have to know, you know, uh, what trees serve best as the wood portion of, of me. And you'd have to know how to log those trees. You'd have to be a miner to get the graphite that goes in the middle. You'd have to be a miner also to get the metal that forms the ferrule at one end. Uh, and you'd have to be an expert in trees to know which ones produce the material that, that uh, creates the eraser. And there's just a million uh, tasks that go into making a pencil. And the bottom line of that essay is no one person in the world knows how to make a pencil entirely by himself from scratch with only his own knowledge. And think about that. I mean, that is profound. If somebody told you you're not allowed to look at a pencil or anybody who knows anything about them from scratch, you go out and make one. <laughs> wow. You couldn't do it. And, and so when somebody says, oh, well, but a handful of uh, politically empowered people can plan an economy, we shouldn't uh, debate them so much as to declare that to be preposterous. Why should we even debate that? Because none of them even know how to make a pencil. And yet they claim to know how to plan an economy of 330 million people. Give me a break. It's ridiculous. But that's what a lot of socialists have that in their minds that, uh, hey, you know, if we can just do such wondrous things if you just give us the power and concentrate it because, you know, when we're not concentrating power, then people are running off doing their own thing and that might not be what I want them to do. Well, that's what freedom is all about, frankly, but socialists really don't appreciate that. Wow. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, when you think about it like that, that you, there's just no way this is so complicated. And I was listening to an economist recently. I wish I could remember his name, but um, he was saying how we, when you take away the free market like that, you lose your signals, your feedback signals. He said it would be yes. like trying to get around New York City without street signs. And so you, have, you don't know which direction you're going. You don't know where you are. And without that free market feedback, having that pl centralized planning, you end up inevitably taking wrong ways. Yeah. So is that, is that one aspect of a good analogy, I guess, for what you're yes, saying? Yes, it is. It's a very important one. Uh, the great economist uh, Ludwig von Mises in the 1920s uh, was the man who pointed this out, and socialists have never answered it effectively since. He pointed out that mm. socialism can't work uh, because it cannot plan. It has an inability, as he put it, to calculate. Prices in a, in a socialized system are just the arbitrary whims of uh, politicians mm -hmm. and the bureaucrats. In a, and so they don't know what they're doing. They don't know whether something ought to be charged this much, that much. But in the free market, when prices are free to uh, relate to things like supply and demand, consumer preferences, and so forth, prices carry immense amounts of information. They tell us in a free market that well, hey, this item uh, we got enough of. You don't need to make any more of that. Uh, uh -huh. Free up resources to make something else because the price of that thing will fall. When prices go up, that sends the message that, wow, uh, more people want more of this. So divert some resources to meet that demand. Prices send uh, signals. They allocate scarce resources and they direct production. 
as long as they're free to reflect uh, market forces of consumer preference and supply and demand. You strip all that away, then they just become arbitrary declarations by bureaucrats. That's why uh, when uh, the centrally planned economies of the old Soviet Union created such havoc and, you know, it piled up surpluses of one thing and shortages of another, and it was just such chaos. Uh, a socialist theoretician said, well, we have to solve this problem. So let's just get a Sears catalog uh, from, the, from the United States and we'll uh, uh, approximate their prices, which is, you know, uh, which is an admission that socialism can't work. That's really interesting. Wow. Crazy. And I think the other part of it that stood out to both Nerva and I, one of the analogies that people have seen going around the internet is the the whole getting a grade in a classroom and how yeah. it de-incentivizes um, hard work because who's yeah. going to work harder if you're going to get the same result, whether you work hard or not. So, you know, if you, if you're, if they're just going to take all the test scores in a room and average them out to a mean average, you're not going to work, do that extra work to get an A plus so you can be pulled down to a D or a C or an F or whatever it might be. It just does it de-incentivizes yeah. and works against human nature. And so I think you, you, you point that out. Anything you'd want to comment on that? Well, uh, yeah, that's totally right. And uh, uh, we fail sometimes, certainly socialists do, to remember that human beings are creatures of incentives and disincentives. We respond. Uh, if we are rewarded for something, we tend to do more of it. If we're penalized for it, we do less of it. Um, and uh, in a free market, uh, you're rewarded for things like work and thrift and investment and savings and risk-taking and entrepreneurship. In a socialized system, you tend to get rewarded to the extent you serve the state instead of consumers. Um, but incentives are really critical. Uh, just ask yourself, uh, do you know anybody on this planet who would work harder for the state, the distant, faceless bureaucracy of the state, than they would to uh, working for either themselves or their family? I mean, you know, it's just the way we are. And, and thankfully, uh, that, that is the way we are. I'm glad we don't work as hard for a faceless bureaucracy as we work for ourselves and our families. Okay. All right. So talk to us about, um, it seems like in socialism, one of the main things that happens at first is that the takeaway of private property, if I understand correctly, and that alone can affect just the dignity of humans and also the way just um, buildings or neighborhoods begin to kind of just get run down because there's no one taking responsibility over the properties. And so can you talk to a little bit about that? Yes, I'd be happy to. Private property is uh, so key in human progress that you take it away and progress disappears, uh, or certainly becomes far more difficult. Uh, and that's again because we're creatures of incentive. We tend to do uh, better and work harder and smarter whenever we can say uh, the fruits of that effort, at least some of it or a lot of it, will be mine. Not somebody mm -hmm. else's, but mine, because I'm the one who worked for it. Uh, mm -hmm. Again, it's an observation about human nature that suggests that private property is critical. If you um, uh, want to trash the resources of society fully, all you have to do is take property from those who created it or to whom it belongs and uh, give it to a politician to spend or take care of as he wishes. That's a surefire way to uh, uh, destroy something of value. 
I had a very, I have a very good friend who was uh, prime minister of Mongolia twice and president twice. And the first time he was prime minister, he was uh, coming into power shortly after the demise of communism. And uh, uh, he visited with me in Michigan at that time. And I said, uh, what are you most proud of uh, with your time as prime minister? And he gave me a great story with a lesson about private property. He said, well, the first time he said, I was only in uh, the office for about a year and all of the yaks, you know, those big hairy Mongolian cattle, all of the yaks in Mongolia belonged to the government for 75 years under communism. Uh, they couldn't be owned privately. And the herdsmen who took care of them uh, were doing so uh, as government employees. And he said, over 75 years, the population of yaks never changed. It was 25 million wow. over 75 years. And he said, I decided when I was prime minister uh, that yaks were not a core function of government. <laughs> so he said, I decided, <laughs> yeah, we were going to sell them. So he said, I worked out a formula where we could sell the yaks to the herdsmen. Some bought one, some bought two, some bought five or ten. Uh, but in no time, he said, we privatized all 25 million of them uh, and got them out of the hands of the government. Suddenly, they belonged to the people who had previously been told to take care of them. And then three years later, I visited him when he was prime minister a second time. And in his office, I asked him, what happened to the acts that you privatized three years ago that you turned from government property into private property? And he got all excited. He said, remember, I told you the population never changed. It was 25 million for 75 years. I said, yeah. And he said, well, now, after just three years, we have 32 million yaks. Wow. And what was the difference? The fact that the herdsman now could say, well, this is my yak. Uh, so I better take care of them. I've made an investment here. And if I only have one, maybe it makes sense for me to get a second one and raise more yaks. And in just three years time, the population went through the roof. They were exporting yak meat and so forth. The difference was simply private property. It makes all the difference in the world. Um, if you don't own it, you're not gonna take care of it. Uh, if it's owned by everybody, as the socialists like to claim, the people's property, then everybody has an incentive to use it, even abuse it, but no incentive to take care of it. Oh. Uh, that just proves itself time and time again. I don't know why we have to keep telling socialists that, but they, they keep thinking that, well, you know, someday uh, everybody will behave differently and human nature will go by the boards and people will do what we tell them. Uh, hey, good luck with that. <laughs> wow. Is there such a thing as uh, democratic socialism and what's the difference? Uh, well, in this sense, that some people claim there is, <laughs> then, okay, yeah, I guess you. something that we have to at least address. Uh, can you imagine anybody claiming uh, democratic Nazism? <laughs> and yet you could because Hitler came to power democratically in the mm. uh, elections in 1932. But of course, nobody would, uh, would ever claim that. Nobody would want any kind of, of uh, his brand of socialism, democratic or not. Um, but that was socialism, by the way. Hitler was a socialist. His party was called the National Socialist German Workers' Party. It uh, just had some differences with the Soviet version because he wanted Russian territory and Russia didn't want him to have it, uh, mm. just proving there's no honor among thieves. Uh, I know there are people who claim today that, uh, well, uh, you know, we don't want to have the kind of socialism that involves tanks and 
you know, Stalinesque uh, policies. We want it to all be democratic. We want people to vote for this stuff. And so when they do, that somehow sanctifies it and we can call it democratic. But if the end result is the same, uh, I don't, I'm not sure how much the democracy side of things makes a difference. But the problem is the more socialism you have, the more it tends to undermine the democratic portion. I mean, if you know, the more you concentrate power, the more government is going to tell you how to behave, how to vote, and whether or not there are some things you can vote on or whether you can't. Uh, I mean, the last thing you want to do if you want to preserve, uh, you know, broad-based people power is to concentrate power in a, ha a handful a handful of government politicians. So that term is at war with itself. Um, you know, you can only have the democratic side for so long. And if you don't get rid of the socialist side, it will get rid of the democratic side. Yeah, that's, you know, and that has been... And at least for what I can tell, the tendency lately of the Democratic Party yeah. has been to adopt that language. And then typically what I hear them saying was, well, we don't mean socialism of the Russian Venezuelan stripe. What we mean is the socialism in Denmark, Sweden, the Nordic or Scandinavian countries. Um, well, what would your response be to that? Yeah, that, that still comes up quite a lot. Um, Whenever I hear that, Bernie Sanders, you know, said that a lot during his uh, recent campaign. Uh, every time I heard it, I wanted to say, Bernie, you're 40 years out of date. Uh, the Scandinavian countries, for the better part of the uh, 20th century, had very free economies, uh, very capitalist, and they became among the uh, richer countries of Europe. Uh, but then in the uh, uh, post-war period, uh, and for about 30 years, they decided, hey, let's uh, turn away from that. And now that we figured out how to produce a lot of stuff, let's redistribute it. Let's have extensive welfare programs and ever higher taxes. Well, they practiced that for about 30 years. And the result was, uh, in every single case, a flight from that. Those countries for the last 25 years or more have tried to dismantle much of that. In fact, uh, Denmark, uh, Sweden, Norway, uh, they are all among the freest countries in the world today. Uh, Denmark, mm. actually on the index of economic freedom, is a few points ahead of the United States. Sweden and Norway are in, uh, within the, the first 30 countries on the scale of economic freedom. So they've brought down taxes. They've dismantled much of that uh, social structure when they discovered that it didn't work. Those countries now, uh, they don't nationalize industries. Uh, they don't... Uh, have any state-imposed nationwide minimum wage laws. Uh, they are globalized uh, free traders. Um, they're much more capitalist uh, and as a result are uh, uh, doing relatively well. That's why I like to say if you look around the world and you, you find a country that you think is at least partly socialist and it seems to not yet have fallen into disaster, then you might be tempted to say, ah, see, it works. But in every case, What's working is not the socialism they have, it's the capitalism they haven't yet destroyed. Uh, go full socialism and then you get Venezuela or North Korea or Cuba. And those are unmistakable disasters. So it's kind of like, it, it seems like it's almost like a sliding scale. Like on one end you have, you know, the free market on the other end, other end full on socialism and kind of the more it tends toward that, the more downside you see <laughs> economically, I'm guessing the more you tend toward this even in China's case, because people will sometimes refer to them as a successful case of socialism. But from 
what I would imagine you would say, and I've heard others say, well, their success has actually been due to implementing more free market approaches. Is that, is that kind of what you would say? Yeah, in and in fact, you don't, you don't have to take my word for it. That's what the Chinese have said. <laughs> and right. When Deng Xiaoping started these uh, economic reforms uh, some 30, 40 years ago, uh, he made it plain that uh, the socialism of the Mao, Mao Zedong years, uh, had come to a dead end. And uh, he never quite could bring himself to admit to the tens of millions of peoples who die, uh, people who died from it. But at least he said, we, we, we're not going anywhere with this. And so we have to implement some market reforms. So China now is kind of a hybrid. Uh, in economics, uh, they're f much freer than they were for decades and as a result, more economically prosperous. On the political side of things, though, they are uh, still a one-party political monopoly. Uh, time will tell whether they can retain that. Yeah, that's good. And when we're having this debate kind of in, in our world, you know, when do you think it's a mistake for conservatives every time something moves in a particular area towards socialism to say, oh, this is socialism? Or is there, is there, in other words, I guess, is there a distinction between like a welfare state and socialism or is the welfare state like applied socialism to certain areas? How would you characterize that? Well, I think the welfare state is sort of uh, semi-socialist or applied socialism. But uh, I don't think we can uh, keep our rebuttals to it to simply, oh, this is socialism, let's not do that. Because to a lot of people, that sounds like a bumper sticker. It just sounds like a generality. Mm -hmm. I think we should uh, take each of these proposals that would give us more socialism and explain to people why uh, or what the outcome is likely to be. And if it's harmful, why that would be harmful. That's probably more fruitful than just... Uh, uh, claiming, uh, you know, it's socialism, therefore, just trust us, we shouldn't do it. Uh, I mean, that, for people like me, that's good enough. But, <laughs> but if you want to persuade a lot of people, you got to go into more detail and explain why it's harmful. So yeah, I think, I think that's helpful, though, what you said, kind of, you know, addressing it case by case and helping people understand what are the pitfalls of this, because it sounds like, man, I mean, wouldn't you want everybody to have health care and, and have it all paid for? Or why should we have to pay these high tuition prices, you know, all that kind of stuff sounds on the surface, but then once you dig a little deeper, you realize what that means and what that entails. There's some, many problems that result. Um, that, that's right. I, I, let me just add, if I could, Seth, that part of our task, I think, is to get people to be more thorough in their thinking, yeah. to not uh, be taken in by uh, bumper stickers or mm false promises, but rather be able to analyze these proposals in a little more depth. And that sometimes requires us to think long term, too, because a lot of what socialism promises sounds like it might be good for the short run. Uh, and sometimes it might even be. Uh, maybe the consequences or the effects aren't really felt until a little later. I'm sure if you told the ancient Romans in the early part of their uh, welfare state that hey, you might not want to go down this path because in uh, a little while, your whole civilization is going to go down the tube. They might have said, what? Well, we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. But of course, that's what happened. Uh, mm. And uh, wow. all the high-sounding rhetoric about the good things government was going to do for them in the long run didn't make any difference. There's just so much, there's so much learning 
that we that we need these days and and that's why i think this will this will be helpful for many people who haven't ever been able to to really think through what you know it's uh, jay richards always says one question you want to ask about economic policy is and then what will happen yes it's not enough to have you know merely good intentions but you need to know what are the implications that will follow when we put this policy into place and and i think what you're pointing out is socialism the implications and then what will happen is almost always not only negative, but like disastrously yeah. negative on every part of an economy. So, you know, what's really interesting to me is how far the the democratic party as a whole has now just come out. Whereas in the past you would hide your socialism and not really want to talk about it, put a different spin on it. But now they're coming right out and saying we are for socialism. Um, has that surprised you and then what do, you, what do you see for the future of that party? Are, are they going to continue going down further that path, or do you, do you see them pulling back some? What do you, what do you think on that? Well, it has been more brazen uh, than uh, I thought not so very long ago. Uh, I think socialists may feel pretty confident right now that they uh, can push uh, their extreme agenda. They may be right about that. I hope not. Um, I think, however, they're probably miscalculating that uh, there's still across this country a great deal of, of things that hold a free society together, like civil society act activities, people caring for people, uh, starting and supporting volunteer civil society projects and organizations. Um, and there's a rugged individualism that still runs through America. And, so I think they're actually going to have a harder time than they might imagine uh, trying to foist their agenda on the American people. Although we shouldn't uh, underestimate the extent to which decades of uh, false uh, uh, teachings in, uh, in many of our government schools and uh, support for socialism uh, from the major media, we shouldn't underestimate the extent to which those things now present a major problem that people, people think it sounds great uh, in too many numbers. So we got to keep mm. working on that for sure. One of the uh, end goals of socialism is equality. Yes. Equality of all mankind. Talk to us about that. Why is that realistic or unrealistic? Because that seems like, oh, we want to look out for all people. And um, there's different thoughts behind that. But can you touch yes. on that a little bit? That end goal? Yes. Equality in uh, one sense is critically important should be supported by everybody. And that's the notion of equality before the law, that the law should be unbiased, that the law should be impartial, that it shouldn't uh, tax or regulate or govern in a way that advantages artificially one group over another group. Uh, and historically, you know, uh, most of the time in most of the world, uh, the uh, equality before the law has not been achieved. Uh, it's something that even in America, you know, we still fall short of, but uh, we have been committed to that as a principle as strongly or more strongly than just about any other country in the history of the world. Uh, so that, that aspect of equality is critically important. Now, socialists will say, oh, we're, we are for that. But then they want to set up all kinds of laws that uh, vilify certain people they don't like. Oh, if you're successful or if you have a, this much income or more, then we got to vilify you and take it from you. And, you know, and then they concentrate power in the hands of flawed individuals who the last thing on their minds, uh, the minds of corrupted uh, politicos, 
is that they should be impartial in their application of the power they wield. That's just not going to happen. That's a pipe dream. But the kind of equality that socialists uh, talk about most of the time is economic equality. Equality in or something approaching it in terms of the incomes we earn or the material wealth that we possess or both. And that is a very dangerous concept. The only way that can be accomplished is through the use of force. You've got to tell people, don't excel, don't be better, don't be different, don't be there first, don't come up with a new idea that everybody else hasn't thought of. You might get a competitive edge and that would be bad and that sort of thing. The only way you can prevent uh, economic inequality uh, from um, materializing is if you tell people by force of law uh, not to do those things, not to innovate, excel, or start a business. You know, we are not the same from one person to another. One of the most remarkable things about human beings is that no two of us who have ever lived have been precisely the same. No two of us. If, if that had been the case, you'd, you'd be saying, in effect, that the same person lived twice. There's no evidence of that. Uh, so we're each of us a unique and precious, rare, exceedingly rare commodity. And to be who we were intended to be, to be the unique individuals that we are, you have to give people significant freedom. And they exercise that through the choices they make. And sometimes they make good ones, sometimes they make bad ones. Some people are more risk averse, others are more adept and willing to take risks. I mean, okay. we're different in terms of the talents that we have. And even when we discover what our talent is or best talent is, different in terms of how hard we work and how long we work and how much we save and how much we invest. Why should anybody think that people of such difference uh, should end up generating the same incomes, the same material wealth in the marketplace? I mean, that's absurd. And yet socialists, they think, you know, well, the more we can move toward everybody having about the same, the better society is. Well, then who's going to take the great risks? Who's going to innovate? Who's going to, you know... You, you often hear uh, people today even say, oh, the common man, let's glorify the common man. And, you know, there's one sense, and I relate to that, I guess, but, but in the bigger picture, it's not the common men and women that make such a huge difference in the world. It's the uncommon ones uh, who do all these wonderful entrepreneurial things. So we should not forget that. Well, I want to I want to get into the theology in just a minute here. Before we do, we just touched on this, but there's two things. One of your quotes in your book, you said, "Free people are not equal, and equal people are not free." Yeah. I want you to I want you to explain that tension, and then I also, after that, if you will, explain individualism and collectivism. Okay. And then with both of those categories, how do we work on that balance? How do we how do we balance those out? Okay. Uh, free people are not equal, and equal people are not free. This is uh, the first of what I call the seven principles of sound policies. This is seven that I happen to choose or, or write up uh, over the years. It's been uh, uh, used in a lot of places, translated in quite a few languages. Again, uh, the equality that this principle refers to uh, is the economic side of things, uh, not equality before the law, which I think we should not really question. That's an ideal. You know, why shouldn't the law be impartial and honest and fair uh, to everybody? But uh, e economically speaking, if people are free, they're not going to be equal. 
not equal economically. And that's because, again, we have different talents. We have different uh, degrees of willingness to work and take risks. Uh, you know, for a million reasons, uh, stemming from the differences that each of us represents from all others, uh, we're not going to generate the same incomes in the marketplace. Uh, you know, why should we expect everybody to come away from the marketplace of exchange, free and willing exchange, earning exactly the same income? Why, why should they? I mean, we're not all providing the same uh, service or good of the of the same value or to the same people. It's just a million reasons why you shouldn't expect free people to be equal, economically equal, that a brain surgeon would earn the same as a, as a custodian. That's uh, absurd. Uh, and the second part of that principle, equal people are not free, I think is even more uh, meaningful. It says that if you could find a place in the world where people are equal economically. If you came to me and said, I just came from a country and everybody, regardless of what their contribution was to the marketplace, is earning the same. Uh, I would say without knowing anything else, that, is, that has to be an unfree place uh, mm. because you can't have economic equality without putting a gun to everybody's head and mm. telling them, now don't be better, don't be different, don't be there first, mm. don't come up with any good ideas that everybody else doesn't think of and so forth. Otherwise, you know, you're going to have instant inequality. On the question of individualism versus collectivism, I think the distinction is uh, best understood in the context of a snowstorm. If you think of it from the big picture, you see a snowstorm, it just looks like a blob of, of white. You don't, you, you don't really at first recognize that uh, it's not just one solid blob, it's actually made up of billions or trillions of individual snowflakes. And to this day, scientists have yet to find two snowflakes that are identical. And in a lot of sense, that's, that's the way we are as humans. So if you really want to understand a snowstorm, I mean, there are some things when you look at it from afar, you can learn from it, but you really want to get down to the nitty gritty and understand the, the composition of the storm, the flakes that make it up, uh, without which there'd be no storm. And that's true of um, humankind, too. There would be no humankind, no humanity, if there weren't uh, uh, individuals that composed it. And one of the salient features of individuality is that we are unique one to another. No two people who have ever lived have been precisely the same. That tells you, I think, that um, if you really want to understand humanity, don't ignore what makes it up what um, uh, is at the, the core of it. It's individuals. That's why a good economist will study uh, not collective entities, but rather actual real-world decision-making, thinking entities, individuals, and how their decisions and choices interact with other individuals. You can't separate that and just study the blob without uh, understanding what's really going on here. And do you think socialism emphasizes the collectivism in an in a bad way in an unhealthy way and if so how can you do that with individualism as well can there be an unhealthy emphasis on either one socialism does emphasize uh, the collective and in a very arrogant way it assumes that uh, those in charge can somehow divine the will of the people and uh, implement it across you know all of society uh, they like to gloss over the differences that define us as individuals and try to compress us or homogenize us, you might say, in, in like a communal blender. Uh, uh, and the only way they can do that is through the use of force. Um, 
but they don't really, they may know individually what they want, but they can't mm -hmm. begin to know every aspect of the mentality, the thinking, the ambitions, the choices, the motivations of the individuals that make up society. It's presumptuous and arrogant of them to think that they could. Uh, now, Seth, you had a second part to that question, and I've forgotten. Yeah, so is there, is there an extreme individualism oh, yeah. that, that works its way from the other side? Uh, I, I think there can be. I mean, if you, let me give you an example of that. If, uh, if as an individual, you, you say, uh, I don't like any other individual. I don't want to have any, anything to do with any other individuals. I, I'm going to even ignore my family because that's other people. The heck with them. Uh, everything is all about just me. Uh, I guess that would be an extreme individualist approach, and I think that's untenable. Uh, it also runs counter to human nature. I think we are social beings. We're sort of made for each other made for each other to cooperate and collaborate and find common ground, not to lord it over each other, not for a few to possess the power that the others don't and, and then start pushing them around. So I think a free and peaceful people will not choose to be radical individualists. They'll, they want to trade. They want to uh, raise their families. They want to deal with other people and they want to be friends. Um, so, you know, you can have a radical individualist, but boy, they're very few and far between. The greater danger, frankly, comes from uh, the, other, the other side of things, the collectivist approach, because that invariably uses uh, political power and force to homogenize people into uh, the, the plans of the few. Well, and, and I know, like, as we go on in this God and Government series, we're going to be kind of get more into the details of the free market, but just, just to, to kind of quick, give us a quick overview. Do you think then the free market is economically does the best job of balancing freedom, equality, individualism, collectivism? And if so, why does it do that? Now, one of the uh, great things about a free market, I think is that at a very fundamental level, uh, it's what happens when you leave people alone. Uh, it doesn't have to be planned. Nobody at the top, has, no king has to say, hey, folks, I think this free market thing is a good idea, so now I'm going to make you do it. Uh, no, it just happens. As long as you provide for a peaceful environment, redress of grievances, a justice system, uh, defense against invasions of property and life and so forth, just leave people alone. They will develop free markets. They begin to say, huh, I can't just put a crown on my head and wrap a robe around myself and declare myself king. People just laugh at me. So I guess I have to go out and produce something and, uh, and offer it to them. And uh, then we both are winners. So free markets do flow naturally from human t nature, from rationality, from people wanting to do better. And you're going to do that far more effectively in cooperation with others than you would as a, a Robinson Crusoe on a deserted island. Um, mm. Now, uh, once again, I've kind of misplaced the second part of your question. You get, you yeah, with wound up. <laughs> no, for sure. That's good. That's good. As far as the individualism and collectivism, how does it impact that? Oh, um, well, I think, you know, collectivism, I wouldn't say that invariably it is evil or poison. Uh, it tends to be that if it's imposed by force. Mm. But we have uh, many, uh, all of us, in fact, as individuals at one time or another, have, have chosen to act in sort of collective ways. You know, we come together and form a Boy Scout troop or uh, a church or any number, number of things. And we decide, for instance, that important uh, 
decisions that have to be made uh, will be done in consultation or by by voters. You know, we choose sometimes to involve ourselves with others in a kind of collective way. I have no problem with that. And that's, I think, natural and expected. As far as uh, uh, the introduction of force, though, that's where I would draw the line. People yes. should be free to choose to collaborate peacefully, uh, but they should not, if they get frustrated or get what they think is a better idea, they shouldn't grab the club and start beating people over the head and say, now you're going to do this because I think it's better than whatever you wanted to do. That looks like socialism, uh, yeah. but it runs counter to human nature. Man, I wish we could have you here for so long because I want to dive into, you know, there's a, there, is a, there is a connection going on right now between collectivism, social justice, Marxism, mm. and socialism. Maybe we'll be able to get into that in a little bit, but if not, I'm going to recommend to our readers, you have a chapter that really digs into that a good bit. And so the book, um, Was Jesus a Socialist? I, I, I want to highly recommend that. Um, but but as, we're, as we're beginning to wrap up here, or head toward the wrapping up, at least, I'm going to close like the old school preachers. This is my first closing. Um, and so, you know, one of your unique contributions to this topic is the theological contribution. And you, your book is titled, Was, Was Jesus a Socialist? Now, on the one hand, it's, it's like, man, are people really making that claim with a straight face that Jesus was a socialist? But you, you actually um, quote people, yes, they are making that. What are they, who, who are these folks that are making that claim, and on what basis are they saying this? Well, I think invariably they, they are socialists themselves, and they are trying to lay claim to Jesus as one of theirs even though an amazing number of socialists don't really believe. They're not believers, but they love to say, yeah. oh, but Jesus would be one of us if we believed in him. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's another subject, I guess. <laughs> yes. But I think they're smart enough to be reasonably good marketers, and they realize, you know, about 2.3 billion people on the planet call themselves Christian, and more than half of the American people, easily more than half, uh, claim to be of, of Christian uh, faith. So if they're going to implement socialism, they either better overcome that or they have to claim, oh, it's, this, it's, it's compatible with our message. So that sets them off in all kinds of directions. But I'm convinced that the, the overwhelming majority of, of socialists who make that claim that Jesus was a socialist haven't really done their homework and actually read mm -hmm. the New Testament. They just sort of think, oh, yeah, didn't he, uh, didn't he say he wanted to help the poor? Oh, well, then he's a socialist. Uh, even though there's more help for the poor under capitalism than there is under socialism, uh, you know, but, so they're, they're grasping at straws to try to claim that uh, Jesus was a socialist. But I can find nothing in the New Testament, none of the words of Jesus or any of the apostles, any of the leaders of Christianity that would support the ethics or the teachings of any variety of socialism. He, Jesus never said, Oh, well, uh, here we got these 5,000 people we got to feed. Well, let's go find some rich people to steal from, and we'll redistribute their stuff. Uh, no, he created wealth using his own unique power to feed uh, the 5,000. Uh, he say, said he came to uphold the law, and that includes thou shalt not steal, which doesn't go on to say unless you have a really good idea about what to do with it, or thou shalt not steal unless the other guy has more than you do. Um, Jesus also told parables that had uh, a strongly economic uh, content that supported things like private property, voluntary contract, honest dealings. Uh, and he never advocated the political uh, redistribution of force. Never said, oh, the state over here, that's their job. Let them take care of the poor. 
I mean, the whole story of the Good Samaritan that Jesus told is that a, a man of his own free will and with his own resources chose to help a man. If the Samaritan had said to the guy in need, oh, sorry, somebody else will take care of it, or it must be a government program for you, uh, you know, we would think of him today as the good-for-nothing Samaritan. <laughs> So good. You know, I've heard and I've seen some tweets of people just kind of tweeting, but Jesus condemned the rich and he came for the poor and the downtrodden. And of course, and on, on that note, how would you respond to that? Well, first of all, the, remember the context, context in which he was talking about these things it was Roman occupied Palestine. Uh, it was not in any way, quote, democratic. And uh, if you were wealthy at that time, chances are it was because of your political connections. And the corruption among political officials was, was extremely uh, uh, extensive. Uh, Jesus never said that whether or not you can be saved depends on how much money you have. He never said if you earn up to this much, you're okay, but if you earn more than that, well, then you're in trouble. He never said anything like that. He was looking instead at your heart, at your soul. How do you deal with people? Uh, so, you know... Uh, so I hope that answers your question, but yes, it does. Socialists are so misled, uh, or have chosen to be misled, when they claim that. Um, I mean, he did warn that rich, uh, or riches, I should say, richness uh, comes with some temptations, and he would certainly say the same about power, which is what socialists are trying to accumulate all the time. He said, okay, just be careful if you become rich that you don't allow your riches to rule you. Don't uh, 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 forget your priorities. Uh, don't worship your wealth. Well, that doesn't mean don't be wealthy. It just says handle it well. Yeah, it's interesting. I love the, the chapter you have where you go through the three parables, including the okay. Good Samaritan. But, yeah, really you know, because sometimes you read those and, and you – you don't dig very deep, especially the one where he hires the different workers throughout the day and gives them all the same. Was it a, a denarius? Um, and you might walk away from that thinking, oh, equal pay. But it's actually the exact opposite <laughs> yeah. that's going on there. Yeah. Can you just briefly give us an explanation of that, that parable? Yes, uh, told by Jesus himself. He talks about uh, a man who owns a vineyard, and uh, he realizes he's got to hire workers to help bring the harvest in before it rots. And uh, first, day, first thing in the morning, he hires a group of workers and offers to pay them a denarius. And then uh, a little later on in the day, say about noon, he realizes, gee, I've got to get more people in the field to bring the crop in. So he hires some additional workers. Now, they're going to work maybe half as much as the first group, but he offers them the same, a denarius. And then at the end of the day, with maybe an hour to go before dark, the man hires a few more workers and says, I know there's not much left of the day, but if I can get you out to work, I'll give you a denarius. Then later, all these workers come together, and the first group says, this is not fair. He paid us the same, and we worked all day. Those guys at the end, they worked an hour, and they get the same. Well, if Jesus were a socialist, he would have the uh, owner of the vineyard saying, oh, yeah, you're right, that's not fair. i got to make sure you all get the same equal pay uh, on an hourly basis. But no, he doesn't. What Jesus has the, the vineyard owner saying is, hey, it's my money. Didn't I pay you what I promised? Didn't you sign a contract? Didn't you agree? I, I mean, this is, a, and, and basically says, get out of here. I, you know, in good faith, I paid each of you what I offered you, which is uh, a, 
stunning defense of private property, of voluntary contract, and, and I think, too, as an economist, probably supply and demand. Mm. At the end of the day, you know, how many people, after already working at our other jobs, want to turn out to work for some guy they don't know for another hour? Uh, you probably have to pay them a premium. So Jesus was presenting a parable there that uh, no socialist okay. uh, could tell. Yeah, no, that's it. And you also do the, the parable of the talents, which is instructive about how he actually, the guy that he gives five to, uses it well, he gives five more and even takes from the one that he gave one to that didn't use it well and yeah. gave it to another. And that's, that's right. like the op, in, in every way, it's the opposite. But, you know, one of, one of the quotes, I think even on your PragerU video, I saw in the comments that someone was responding to you saying, uh, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. Isn't, isn't that clear enough? And in other words, I think they were trying to imply that, you know, whatever the government asks us, if it's socialism or tax, we just need to do it. Or sometimes the, the thought is, well, Christianity has nothing to do with politics. That's a, it's a separate sphere. So as Christians, we just need to go along and do whatever they tell us, get in line, be, a, be that socialism or whatever it might be. Um, what, what are your thoughts on when Jesus said that? How, how should we understand that? Yeah, you know, socialists love to take that uh, phrase, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's, and uh, to God that which is God's, and twist that into some kind of endorsement for just about anything that Caesar uh, wants to take, and no matter what he wants to use it for. I mean, uh, mm. it's, it's, I mean, does anybody who understands the teachings of Jesus for one moment believe that Jesus was in effect saying, oh yeah, if, it, if Caesar says it's his, well, you got to give it to him. It doesn't matter, you know, uh, uh, what he spends it on either. So if he wants it all, well, it must be his. I mean, Jesus would never say that. It would be completely incompatible with everything else he taught about honest dealings and private property and respect for the lives and property of other people. Uh, understanding the context here, again, is very important. Mm -hmm. The Pharisees were trying to trick Jesus into uh, saying something that they could run to the Roman authorities and claim uh, was tax evasion. They wanted him to say, oh, no, don't give Caesar. You know, they would have loved it if he had said, don't pay your taxes, uh, revolt against Caesar. But he didn't say anything like that. What he said was a very clever response, mm -hmm. which actually left the matter up to us to decide what is the proper function of government, how much should it take. He says, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. Well, that could be nothing. Maybe nothing is his. He didn't say that, no, a certain amount is Caesar's for sure. He says, render it unto Caesar if it's his, and to God if it's his. But he leaves it to us to make such decisions as, well, how much should government rightfully mm -hmm. take? So it's not some blanket endorsement of whatever some dictator wants to take from people. <laughs> but the socialists mm -hmm. would love you to think that. Interesting. So yeah, it's really good. Beautiful stuff. We love that. So one of, the, one of the softer claims that people will sometimes make, well, maybe Jesus wasn't a socialist, but doesn't the Bible, um, doesn't biblical theology uh, imply socialist or progressive policies? You know, isn't that the compassionate thing to do? Shouldn't, as Christians, we should be compassionate. Socialism is compassionate. Therefore, socialism is Christian in that mm. sense. What, what are you, what's kind of a, your response to that? Well, of course, the way socialism operates, there's nothing compassionate about it except the promises that it makes. But the means by which it, it attempts to achieve its compassion is uh, force. It's uh, vilification of the productive. It's seizure of their assets. It's a violation of private property. So it's only the rhetoric 
of socialism that seems to be compassionate, not uh, the actual means. And of course, we know from decades of uh, welfare state policies in America that uh, those policies actually did a great deal of harm. They broke families apart. They paid people to split because they'd get more money. They encouraged intergenerational dependency. They, they, and then politicians uh, use those programs to buy votes. Okay, in your last chapter, you bring up an author of mine that I adore, C.S. Lewis, and another author, Jake Gresham Machen, as uh, two theologians who got it right. Overall, yes. what did these two gentlemen contribute to this topic of socialism? Would you like to expound? <laughs> yeah, I share with you a, a great uh, love of C.S. Lewis. What a remarkable man. Uh -huh. One of those people you wish you could go back in time and spend an hour with. J. Gresham Machen, same way. Well, both of these gentlemen were serious Christian thinkers, uh, and they also were fighters against the uh, what they call the progressive drift within uh, mainstream Christianity in their day, which continues to this day. Uh, they felt that uh, the Word of God is inerrant, and it's in Scripture, and you don't make stuff up uh, to fit some political agenda and that you should seek to understand it by studying it, not by just saying, well, it's just, you know, whatever makes us feel good, let's just superimpose it on what we think God wants us to do. They were very serious uh, uh, Christian theologians. Uh, when they talked about government, uh, both men uh, who did not know each other, uh, both men understood that uh, at the core of humanity is a the serious flaw of sin, and it's something that uh, afflicts us all. We are not perfect creatures. And they both understood that the last thing you'd want to do is to give an imperfect creature prone to uh, the desire to uh, cheat or lie or steal. You don't want to give that person or any person uh, the kind of power that would channel that destructiveness into great harm on the rest of society. So they instinctively, even though they weren't political philosophers, but with their understanding of Christian teaching and human nature, they realized um, uh, God did not expect us as humans to concentrate power in earthly government. Uh, that's, a, uh, that's a prescription for disaster. They, they both argued that in their own way. And uh, uh, that's one of many reasons I admire them. But uh, even if they'd never said anything about government, I think they were just great theologians, uh, great uh, lovers of, of the Bible. Forgive me, if you can make one comment towards the church uh -huh. and why should we be aware of this worldview of socialism? Lots of people, okay. I think, will be voting and have no clue what socialism is. But how will socialism affect the church? Or historically, how has it affected the church? I think if, uh, if you get socialism, the church is in great danger because socialists, especially the secular ones, uh, which I think comprise the majority of socialists, they see Christianity as a competitor. Christianity uh, draws people to another uh, source of power, uh, namely God, and uh, that competes with uh, politicians and their programs. And Christians uh, who, are, who are really understanding of the Bible don't like uh, to be pushed around, and, and yet they will be under a socialist regime because of that inherent uh, tension between uh, secular power that's concentrated and the power uh, that each of us as individual Christians derive from our faith in the Almighty. 
Um, people in the church should not sit idly back. Uh, I'm not telling anybody how to vote, but when it comes to this battle of ideas, we cannot afford uh, to allow earthly power to be concentrated uh, in the hands of the secular state. Uh, that is uh, poison for, for all people, not just uh, Christians. And we should, uh, I think we're called to do or, and to fight for what we know to be right, no matter the odds of success or the obstacles that are in our way. That's really good. Yeah. And so, you know, it, they can they can get more of your stuff. At, is it fee.org, F-E-E.org? Yes, fee.org. Or I have a personal website where everything I have on fee.org is put in one place. So that's uh, lawrencewreed.com. Either way, you can uh, see my stuff and hopefully uh, enjoy uh, what I write. And here I want to point our listeners real quickly here as well to um, – this your book was Jesus a socialist, and um, get that on Amazon. I, you know, I even want to recommend um, just if you're in your church and you have a life group or a Sunday yeah, school, so go through this book in the next couple months. It's so important for right now. I think we're on the cusp of making some very important decisions in our nation that are going to have long-lasting impact. So, um, get this book. Be informed. Be a student. You know seek truth, seek God. And, and I think, you know, we'll, we'll all be better for it. Well, thank you, Dr. Reed thank you so, so much, much for, so uh, good. man, for just doing your ministry, doing what you do for writing this book and for coming on this podcast today. We really appreciate it. Helpful. Well, thank you both. It's been a great honor and uh, I've enjoyed every minute. All right. Now the, the, the for real, for real close here. <laughs> uh, and actually we're going to toss this to our Patreon listeners, but the question we're going to ask you is if, you know, if, if you see, if we see a Biden Harris election in November, we, do you think that they will take steps towards socialism? So that's going to be our Patreon question. If you are interested, uh, you can uh, sign up for our, we'll have the link below. We hope you enjoyed that interview with Lawrence W. Reed. And don't forget, you can check out the answer to that Patreon question if you go to patreon.com slash freemindfm. Support the show with any amount per month and you get access to all the back catalog of bonus episodes. We had a bonus episode last week and another one this week with Lawrence W. Reed. So check that out, patreon.com slash freemindfm. If you haven't yet, we'd appreciate a five-star rating and review in Apple Podcasts. It helps us go up the ranks and be discovered by more listeners like you. And we'd love to interact with you on social media. You can follow us at FreeMindFM on Instagram and Twitter and on Facebook, FreeMindPodcastFM. Be on the lookout for more episodes in our God and Government series. And you can even watch these episodes on YouTube. There'll be a link in show notes or you can go to YouTube.com slash FreeMindPodcast, subscribe, and you can watch our God and Government series and our previous series on critical theory all there on YouTube. Thanks for joining us this week. We'll catch you next time. <laughs>